So at some point in our lives, all of us, I think, become curious about our genealogy, um, our family story, where we have come from. And this is true also in um, times before we had all the cool stuff that we have now. So people would keep records, um, often passed down orally, of who their family was and where they came from. And we have some recordings of this in the Bible as well. We're going to look at one of those this morning. You've probably heard that there's been major advances in this area in recent times, mostly with the advent of very cheap DNA testing. So maybe you've heard of that. There's a bunch of companies who do this now. And when you do this DNA testing, it doesn't tell you the names of the people that you're related to, but it tells you at the genetic level, you know, what your ancestry is in terms of what, how much of your ancestry comes from different parts of the world and things like that. Of course, um, law enforcement has been quick to use this to be able to connect people, family relationships when they're looking for criminals. There's been some interesting moral and privacy questions going on about that. But it's also been interesting for many people because they do this thinking it's just a fun thing to do and then they find out things they didn't expect. So for example, Linda Ketchum of Glendale, California, she asked for one of the DNA kits for Christmas. She thought it would be fun. She had no family secrets she was trying to uncover and no mysteries that she wanted to solve. She just was curious. She said her dad was German and her mother was Scottish English. And she thought, she said, I thought it'd be fun to learn a little about my genetic ethnicity to trace how all the pieces came together. But she ended up getting a lot more than she bargained for. When she went to the DNA site to view her DNA matches, there were no connections between her and her father. Even more unsettling for her was that at least two-thirds of her matches had Hispanic surnames. And she says, at first I didn't believe it. I kept rechecking and I realized, does this mean I'm Hispanic? All these years, she thought she was German on her dad's side. And all of a sudden she realized that she had an entirely different ethnicity and history. So she's 51, a half century into her life. And her whole idea of her cultural identity had changed. And she looked in the mirror and she said, I don't even know who I am anymore. And then every Hispanic person she sees on the street, she's going, could this be my cousin? Because she's now not sure. It's an interesting thing. This has happened. This is a common story, actually. And unfortunately for her, both of her parents were passed, had passed away. So she couldn't get any answers. But through the DNA testing, she was able to actually find out who her biological father was. And though she doesn't know the story, her biological father had passed away when she was 17. She at least now knows who her biological family was. So interesting. Sometimes we may think we know our you know, genealogy and our history. It's been passed down by word of mouth, or maybe it's been written in the back of the Bible, a family Bible. And maybe someone's done some genealogy research. I've done some of this, and I found out that a lot of what's out there is actually extremely inaccurate when you start looking at records, even things my family has told me. So this has um, been sort of a common practice, I think, for a long time, that people would change or tweak their genealogy just a little bit, make it more favorable. Maybe, maybe there's a crazy uncle or cousin who ended up in prison, and you think, ah, let's just keep him out of it. Let's, we don't really need 
need him in there anymore. I think, well, I know that for many of us, when we read genealogies in Scripture, we initially think, this is just boring. Let's just skip over this stuff. We don't want to skip over Matthew's genealogy, and I'm going to tell you why. There are some really interesting things that we see in this. And so that's actually, oh, I have the wrong scripture up there. How about that? Um, Well, you're not going to be able to read this small one. So I apologize. You're going to have to listen today then as I read it, and then um, we're going to look at some of the pieces of it. So this comes from the beginning of Matthew. So not all the gospel writers have birth stories. And they all start, the ones that do have, start a little bit differently. This is how Matthew starts about the birth of Jesus. A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Aram, Aram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, Jesse was the father of David the king, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. This was the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, Abiad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is also called the Christ. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for Matthew and the others who recorded this and re-recorded this, writing down every name and making sure that we have it today. We know your spirit wanted us to have these names and to have this genealogy for a reason, and so we ask that you will help us to have our eyes and heart open to you. In your name we pray. Amen. So I read the whole thing. I read the whole thing because even when I show you today, I'm aware of the fact that there's probably things in here that I'm missing. We, I think, are tempted to just jump past the names and go, well, let's just go, okay, Abraham, Jacob, great. Maybe jump down to King David. Really important, right? I mean, that's the prophecy. The Messiah is going to come in the line of David. Okay, King David. And then we could just jump on down to Jacob and Joseph and Mary and, and Jesus and call it good. But if we do that, we're missing some stuff that is not so boring that we need to pay attention to. And I would say this. 
the first readers and the first hearers of this, they would not have been bored. They would have been very interested. Now, of course, they may have had some family connections, and that may have been interesting as well. But you have to understand that this time, there was no one going around and had, handing out resumes. You know, here's a resume for Jesus the Messiah. Your, your resume was really your family. This is very different in our culture, and I don't think we can really emphasize that enough when we come to Scripture to understand the importance of biological family connections and how people viewed that in a culture of honor and shame and a culture where your um, connections to your family were basically your, you know, like I said, your resume, not just for a job, but just for sort of recommending yourself to anyone. This is how the world worked. For Jewish families, it was even more important because it showed their pedigree and God's chosen family of Israel. Matthew makes the claim that this is the Messiah's genealogy. The genealogy of this title, Messiah or Christ, who'd been prophesied, who was to come, that everybody had been waiting for, that was going to be the king that would come in the line of David that would set things right. I mean, there's all these prophecies and there's all this anticipation. And so they're very interested. If you claim this is a prophecy of the Messiah, you know, we want to know who's in his line. We want to understand what's his resume. And so it would have been a shock when the first readers and hearers of this would have heard four names in there that would have stood out it would have been a surprise. This is going to be really small up here. But what I want you to see here, this is the scripture we read. This is the genealogy. What I want you to see is that I think this is how they would have heard it. It would have been like they were hyperlinked or like they were in highlight or they were in bold because they were unusual for a few reasons. First of all, they're women. And when you gave a genealogy... You typically didn't include a woman. We could, you know, argue why that happened. It, it just did. And so they would have known this was unusual. Secondly, three are non-Jewish outsiders. They don't have the family pedigree. So if you're trying to make a case that someone is the Messiah, the Christ... Why would you include people who don't need to be in there, first of all, because typically people didn't name women. But secondly, they're not even Israelites. They're outsiders. And then Tamar and Rahab have some seriously questionable moral character that everybody knows about because it's recorded in Scripture. And not only that, the men in these stories do as well, like Judah and some of Israel's spies and King David. And it's almost like Matthew saying, remember those stories as he brings out these. And all of them, all of the women here have some serious problems surrounding marriage or lack thereof. And so I want to talk about this for a minute because I think Matthew wanted us to understand this. So here's the names that I believe would have jumped out and stood out. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And they're all in the genealogy, although Bathsheba's name is not mentioned, and I'll talk about that in a second. And then there's the links to where you can find them in Scripture. 
So those who had heard these scriptures, they would have known these stories. And when they heard Matthew's genealogy, they would have remembered these stories. What is Matthew up to? Tamar, in Genesis 38, she's actually Judah's daughter-in-law. Now, you have to understand that much of the Bible, as you read it, by today's standards, would be R-rated. It's very, become very strange to me, as I've grown up in the church, to realize that there's a whole bunch of scriptures that are really uncomfortable to read, and especially to teach to youth and kids, because we go as Christians, these are things we shouldn't talk about, and yet they're in scripture. Because this is the story of God's people. It's messy, it's ugly, and so I'm going to do my best to give you the PG version of these things, but it's hard. I'll just let you know that. So Judah's daughter-in-law, she, um, so Judah has you know, son, two sons, and, and he has this daughter-in-law, Tamar, who's an outsider, and she marries into the family, and her first husband dies, and so the father, um, Judah, does his job, and he says, I'm going to marry you to my next son. Because that was the way it happened, so that she could have children. So he, she gets remarried to the other son, but he wasn't really interested in having children with her. So he used her for pleasure, but did not get her pregnant. And then he dies. So she's still got no kids. So Judah says, well, I have a third son. And so once he's old enough, because he's young, you can marry him. But in the meantime, I'm going to send you back to your family. Now you have to understand this was unusual too. This is like exile. So sending her back without children is a very shameful thing. And so she's sent back to her family that she grew up in, away from Judah's family. And then it's not long before she realizes uh, he's not going to marry me to his youngest son. He gets old enough and she's not given the offer. So what does she do? She dresses herself up as a prostitute and knows when her father-in-law is taking a journey and goes and camps out like a prostitute and solicits him. And they do the thing that they pay this agreement for. And she says, you know, you're going to give me um, this payment. But in the meantime, you have to give me something to prove that you're going to pay me. And so she takes some of his important things like his ring and his rod, his staff and things like that. Then the next day when he sends his servants back to go pay her, She's not there, and nobody knows about a prostitute in that area. Not long after that, Judah hears, hey, your daughter-in-law is pregnant. And he says, bring her here so we can burn her to death. Because she's been a prostitute. You have to understand the hypocrisy in that, right? So she comes and she says, here are the things that belong to the man who got me pregnant. And they're his. Okay, sort of the story, right? And she ends up having two boys who are both named in the genealogy, even though they're not both in the line of Jesus. They're both named as if to say, remember the story. That's Tamar. What about Rahab? She's in Joshua 2. Another story that involves prostitution. The, the spies are sent from Israel to look in the land, and they go into Jericho, and lo and behold, they end up in the house of a prostitute. You don't have to read between the lines too much to understand what's going on. She's not just inviting them in out of the goodness of her heart. This is how things often work and unfortunately still do in some places. And so they go to stay with her. But then there's word that comes to the rulers that there's spies in the land from this big army that's out there. And they're with, this, with Rahab. And so they send people to capture them and she lets them out. But she gets a promise from them first that they will protect her family when they come and invade. 
which happens. She betrays her city, which is an interesting thing to think about. But she turns to, to God's people, so she becomes a heroine. And then she becomes one of the women in the line of Jesus. And then there's Ruth. Now, of all of these, I think Ruth is the one that we could at least attempt to put up on a pedestal and say, here's a, here's a great example. I mean, she's got a whole book of the Bible. It's a pretty short book, and it's a pretty amazing story. And she's King David's great-grandmother, but she's also an outsider. She, however, I would say is an example of persistence and devotion. She's loyal to her mother-in-law, even though she doesn't have to be. And she travels back to live with her mother-in-law in the land of Israel. And she becomes in the line of Jesus. And then there's the wife of Uriah, as Matthew says it. Doesn't mention her name, Bathsheba. Again, as if to bring up the story. The wife of Uriah. Well, who was Uriah? Uriah was one of David's mighty warriors. Uriah was gone fighting King David's battle when he got older and decided he didn't want to go out with the army anymore. So he's now wealthy and he's... King David is a man who's called after God's own heart. And this is like the blackest, darkest story of David's whole thing. Right? He's standing up on his palace and he sees a woman bathing. It's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. So she's married and her, her husband is off fighting war. And he says, bring her to me. And she gets pregnant. There's all kinds of problems with this, obviously. David finds out. He says, well, let's bring Uriah home so he can be with his wife. So David wants to trick him into thinking that he's the father. But it doesn't work because Uriah is so devoted to the king and to his fellow soldiers that he's not going to even sleep with his wife. He stays and he sleeps in the streets by the gate of the palace. David finally says, here, I'm going to give you a message to take back to the army and sends him back, and he carries his own death warrant, because in that sealed message it says to David's commanders, it says, take Uriah, put him up in the front of the fighting where it's the, the most intense, and then you withdraw and leave him there to die. And this is what they do. And then David, King David, takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Now later, King David will be confronted by the prophet, and he will, he will repent of this, but Uriah is still dead, Bathsheba has still lost her husband and, and really forced to marry King David. And this is one of the ancestors of Jesus. And then we get down to Mary. And Mary, again, very much like Ruth, is a woman, as far as we can tell, of immense faith and character, outstanding character. And her story gets written in other places like Matthew 1, 18 to 24. And we're not going to talk too much about Mary this morning. But it's worth mentioning because I always mention this about Mary. You have to understand when Mary becomes pregnant and Joseph says, I want to divorce her quietly. That what's happening is that everybody views Mary as being someone who's gotten pregnant out of wedlock and under the law is deserving of death. And Matthew puts them all in here. He doesn't skip any of these. It's like he picks some of the worst parts of the story. And instead of getting them out of the genealogy, he puts them into the genealogy in a way that everybody can see them. What is Matthew doing? The claim that Jesus makes and the claim that the gospel writers make is that Jesus came 
to seek and save the lost. Jesus says this, but he also models it in the way he lives his life and the way he does his ministry. He touches the lepers. He touches the untouchable and heals them. He allows women to touch him that are not related to him. And he allows women who are not even um, Israelite women, so foreign women. So there's sort of a double um, no-no culturally there. He heals Gentile outsiders, even though they're not part of the family. He eats with tax collectors and sinners, and this makes a lot of the religious folks very uncomfortable and angry. He's with the people who have questionable moral character. It's not a question about whether Jesus sees good in them. They, they have some problems. He does things like letting the children interrupt him when he's preaching and teaching. And telling his disciples to let that happen. And, and picking them up. Luke will go so far to say he takes the infants up into his arms while he's teaching. One of my favorite images of Jesus. The story of the Jesus Christ is a story of good news. It's a story that says that even in the worst of life experiences, even in the worst circumstances, that, that God through Jesus Christ can redeem it. That Jesus can take our worst parts of our story and he can wrap them up into God's story. And Matthew begins his gospel like this. We believe that Matthew wrote his gospel to a Jewish audience. You can see it throughout his writings. You kind of read the gospel. Of the four gospels, it seems most clear that Matthew had a Jewish audience in mind, which meant he knew they would get these stories and they would get these names. And he's saying, there is good news here. There's redemption here. There's God wrapping things up into his story that we think can't be redeemed. If you read anything out of Tim Keller's book that I mentioned you can follow along with as we're doing this, he has a great section where he says, the gospel is good news, it's not good advice. And he talks about the difference between those. And he says, advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what's already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize that something's already happened and respond to it. Advice says it's all up to you to act. News says someone else has acted. And he goes on to say, let's say there's an invading army coming towards a town. What that town needs is military advisors. So it needs advice. This army's coming. Someone should explain that the earthworks and trenches go over here, that the marksmen go over there, the tanks must go down there. However, if a great king has intercepted and defeated the invading army, what does the town need then? It doesn't need military advisors. It needs messengers. And the Greek word, angelos, angelos, means messenger. The messengers don't come and say, here is what you have to do. Rather, they say, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. In other words, stop fleeing, stop building fortifications, stop trying to save yourselves. The king has saved you. Something has been done and it changes everything. That's good news. And that's how Matthew begins his gospel. Through the Holy Spirit, Matthew wants us to see that this is good news 
for all of us, even if we think we're outside the story, even if we think we shouldn't be included in God's story. And in that, there's a gift of hope. So we talk about hope at Christmas, and I believe this is one of the very meaningful gifts that we see revealed in the story of Jesus. It's a reminder that no matter how bleak our circumstances are and what we're struggling with in life, that God's plans for us, God's plans for you, for your family, are bigger than you can imagine. If you go back and you read the stories of these women, some of them were very poorly mistreated. And yet, in the coming of Jesus, we see that they are great, great, great grandmothers of the Messiah, of Jesus himself. It's also, I think, a reminder that Jesus came for those who were poor and mistreated and marginalized. Jesus grew up poor in a humble family. God could have done it any way he wanted. Jesus could have been born in a palace, but he wasn't. He was born to a humble family. Jesus himself, if when you read the story, was a refugee. He had to seek asylum in Egypt. And so I think for all of those who are facing that in today's world, the story is for them. Jesus was mistreated by those who were in power and by those who claimed to be religious teachers and pastors, we would say. And he was eventually put to death by both the religious leaders and the government leaders. They all despised him. So it's a story that reminds us that our sin, what we bring and we say, this is the part of me that's not good enough. This is the part of me that's broken. This is the part of me perhaps that needs healing because someone else has sinned against me. That sin cannot separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the price for that sin. That's the good news. That's the story. And by doing so, he writes us into his family tree as well. And we get to be part of that story. It's a gift of hope.